0: Hey, good morning, everybody. It's like The lights go down, and everybody's like, oh, I'm going to take a nap, right? <laughs> it's summertime. It's, it's interesting. You know, it's funny. I noticed it in our worship. I don't know what it is about summer. Everybody just kind of takes a deep breath and like, whoo, all right. We're just going to hang out. Anybody feel that during worship this morning? Maybe some of you. I, I just like around the room, and like, boy, we're just like chill today. That's what we feel like. But I'm, I'm going to probably upset the apple cart a little bit today. I'm not going to, but I know the Holy Spirit does because he usually does that kind of thing in our lives. So, hey, we are in this series called Resurgence. We're in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, um, find your way to Acts chapter 19, which is the same chapter we've been in for the last few weeks. Um, and we're looking at Paul's uh, um, experience in Ephesus, and we're going to kind of continue through that today. And and this morning I want to talk about, there's, if, if you've been obviously here at the church for this last year, we've been going through resurgence and through the book of Acts. We're watching the journey of the church, how the church was formed, the things that came out of it, how that reflects what we should be and do today. And so as we've walked through this, what you've seen after the explosion of the church coming into existence in Acts chapter 2 and the progression of the gospel being spread is that you start to see a pattern in the book of Acts. And that is that the followers of Jesus, and obviously a lot of it is recording of Paul, Paul goes into a city, crazy stuff happens, a church gets planted, and he moves on. It's kind of what keeps happening. And this is the same kind of scenario we've been in, in Acts chapter 19 for the last couple of weeks, and some crazy stuff has happened, and crazier stuff will happen today. Because what happens when the gospel spreads and Jesus shows up in people's lives is that there's a confrontation that always happens, and so this morning, I, I want to look, as we look at the story, I want to talk about what happens when the gospel confronts the culture. And that means that you and I have to understand, one of the things, if no one's told you this and you're a follower of Jesus, I'm sorry, here's like the spoiler alert, okay? Jesus is disruptive. He, when you encounter him, you know, he accepts you based on his love for you, he will never allow you to live the same life that you lived before. Not because you have to do anything to be better or earn his love, but because he is in the process of transforming you in such a way you'll never be the same. And so what happens when Paul gets to Ephesus, this is the same kind of thing, is that Jesus is coming, obviously, through the presentation of the gospel, and things are getting turned upside down. And so the culture's reacting, but when I say culture, it's probably not the best term, because when we think of culture, we think of the world out there. Culture is kind of the way we function with each other. Culture is the air we breathe. Culture is everything we understand around us. And so there's culture that we live in that's out in the world. There's culture we live within the church. But primarily, probably, I'm going to refer to using the culture that's mentioned in this chapter with the culture that we embrace and we live within kind of the body of Christ and how I think even the gospel challenges that this morning. Because really what I want to talk about today is, is something that most of us, we, when we hear about it, we're like, "Ah, oh, it's no big deal. But when we, we dig deeper about it, it's not something that's really our favorite topic. And that's the concept of idolatry. That we, whether we know it or not, we allow idols to creep into our lives and actually begin to kind of take hold. And what happens is that we, from my experience, we, if you were here about a year and a half ago, we did a series On idols and we identified that for most of us idolatry is not this kind of black and white thing where it's like you know this is good and this is bad this is God and this is idol it's far more subtle than that because for most of us idols are good things that have become ultimate things in our life so they they're meant to be things that are good in our lives but they slowly kind of rise above the level of who Jesus is And they become ultimate things in our life. And so really, what happens in our life is that following Jesus is about Jesus plus one. We always have a plus one with Jesus. We always add something. And that's why, if you remember, when Jesus encountered the man, we call him the rich young ruler. And he gives the whole list of how he's been obedient to all the rules and regulations of the law. And Jesus commends him for that. But then what does Jesus say to him? He said, you still lack what? One thing. And what was Jesus addressing? His plus one, which was his money, his wealth. And Jesus said, that's the thing that's going to cost you anything. Why? Because that's your idol. And what happens is what we don't realize about idolatry, and what idol is, is, is it over-promises and underdelivers in our life. But we buy into the promises, but we don't realize that we're buying into a substitute. It's not the real thing. But we think it's the real thing, but the worst part about an idol is when it underdelivers. you know who we get mad at? We get mad at God. As though he hasn't delivered when we're the ones that have taken a substitute, an idol, instead of who he really is. And so as we look at this passage today, I want us to think about the reality of how good things may become ultimate things, and what God wants us to do is to be able to identify our idols and be willing to give them up, because He has something better for us than any substitute could ever offer us or deliver on in our lives. So if you have your, your Bibles, I'm going to read again, as I mentioned, verse 21 down to verse 41 of Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> it's kind of a lengthy passage, but I want you just to see what unfolds in the story here. So verse 21, verse 21 says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must uh, also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his followers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's talking about the faith or Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These who gathered together with the workmen in similar trades said, Men, you know that, for, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see that here that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. In verse 28, says, When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul f- wished to go into, in, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? See then that these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Thus, let let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this is kind of a crazy story. So all Paul's doing is telling the f- people the fact that, of who Jesus is and the fact that Jesus loves them and that God sent his son to the world to die for them. And this causes a massive riot in the city of Ephesus. Why do they react so strongly? What is the big deal here? What's going on? See, what's happened is the gospel has threatened everything about who they are. So Artemis is the Greek god, the hunting god, the god that they obviously sacrificed and worshipped to. The, the Roman equivalent was called Diana. And so in that culture, both Roman and Greek culture, they understood this goddess, and this was was dominating not only Ephesus, but kind of the, the known world at that time. So when the gospel comes along and says the only true God is Jesus and you don't need figurines or you don't need idols, you don't need any physical representation of who God is to know who Jesus is, then obviously that puts everything at a, as, as, as being threatened because that means of all of who they are would go away if people choose to follow Jesus. This is why there's this huge riot. So with this in mind, I want you to, you and I, just the, the first four things I want to touch on is kind of some reflection, some self-assessment. How do you know if you're dealing with an idol in your life? Because we'll talk about it a little bit. Most of us will brush off the idea that if we do deal with an idol in our life, it's not really an idol, or if it is, it's not that big of a deal. Every idol is a huge deal because it'll always lead us away further from Jesus. So four things from the passage I want us to ask ourselves this morning. The first thing is this. How do I know if I have an idol? first one is this. I lose my security without it. One of the things that an idol always will do is it will make you believe you can't live without it. It has to be present in your life. Verse 25 says, Man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So this is a huge deal. Why? Because this group of people have drawn their entire livelihood from this industry of making physical idols that represent worship to Artemis. And the more people who get saved and follow Jesus, the less people are going to go out and buy these things. So they're realizing that their wealth is now at stake more than just selling what you and I would think were like somehow tourist trinkets on the side of the road. It's much bigger because the entire economy surrounded the worship to this false god. Because in Ephesus, not only were they selling these idols, but they had actually created a bank underneath the goddess of Artemis that people from all over the world would put their money on deposit at this bank. And so if Artemis goes down, the entire economy is decimated. So they're rioting and they're up in arms about this. Why? Because we're going to lose all of what we've earned, all of our wealth. Now I know this doesn't apply to us today at all because none of us ever struggle with money, right? Right? That's sarcasm in case you didn't figure that out. This is exactly where we live in our day today. In fact, I think we have more of an issue of money than they even did then. See, one of the, there's, there's, a, there's the, the, the good side and the bad side of living in the United States. The good side is God has poured out his blessing on our country. But there's a downside to that because we are the most wealthy nation in the history of the world. Do you know that? See, most of us don't even know that because Lifestyle in America is normal to us. It's normal. But for the rest of the world, this is not normal living. The fact that many of us can own a car and own a house and make a living and feed our families, for a good portion of the world, they can't see any of those in their life. And we live in this. And we live by this. We are, we are connected deeply to our economy our economy dictates so much of our mood and our positiveness or our negativeness towards the world around us because we are deeply vested in our finances. In fact, the economy probably is the number one factor who dict- what dictates who ends up in the White House. Did you know that? If you, especially over the last 20 to 30 years, if you follow the ups and the downs of the economy, most presidential candidates will ride into office on an uptick, or on a downtick, depending on what it is, and that will be the determining term- factor. Why? Because when the economy is good, everything's good, right? That's the way we live our life. That's why, that's why when, when the economy is doing well, like unemployment's really low right now, the stock market's up, and so housing is still slightly rising, so everything's good, but when everything turns, everything comes, becomes bad. How do we know this is true? Probably the two biggest crises that our country has faced in the last few decades are 9-11, and the economic downturn in 2008. Both of those instances had profound impact on our economy. And it's interesting, we had two different political parties and two different presidents in the White House in each of those events. But did you know their answer to both of those problems and those challenges and those tragedies was the same? So all of us remember when President George Bush was the president during 9-11, and obviously our country rallied like it hadn't rallied in years, and obviously we were going to go after the terrorists who had done this. I get that. But if you kept watching the news because this hit us so hard, it started to affect the economy. And when the economy gets rattled, that's when everything really gets our attention. Because what was happening is that you would hear statements were made this over and over again, and the president made this statement as to this is an attack on our way of life. Now, our way of life has to do with freedom, but when you use the phrase our way of life, it's more than just freedom. It's freedom to be a consumer. It's freedom to spend money. It's freedom to make money. It's freedom to be a part of an economy that we live and die by. And so, this, if you don't remember this, I'll refresh your memory. So one of the answers and responses to 9-11 from our president was to do what? Spend money what he said. And if we didn't get the message enough, when we rode that high, that crest of the economy, and then it crashed in 2007-2008, and Obama was in, the, in office, do you anybody really remember the stimulus package? Did the government give us our money back so we could save it? Absolutely not. Obama said the same thing. The stimulus package is what? For one reason. To spend money. If I get, we give them money, they'll spend money. And if they spend money, the economy will be better, and everything will be fine. I think we have an idol, and it's money in our country. And when that gets shaken, we start to lose our security. I'll tell you, if your security is in money, you will be insecure the rest of your life, no matter how much you have. Because you will live and die by the stock market. You will live and die by your investments. You will live and die by your paycheck. And you're only supposed to live and die by who? Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that's worthy of of our lives and everything that we have. It's quiet. We'll move to verse 26. And the second thing, just so you know, that was the easy one. It just gets harder after this. So how else do you know if you have an idol? Verse 26, I lose my significance without it. So if you look at verse 26, they're saying that Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's. So the very thing that they're, they're drawing their significance from is now be called into question. And so our status, our significance is now, now we're starting to lose that. And this is a thing for me. I know this is, this is of, of all of the idols I've had to deal with in my life. This is the number one idol for me is significance. That's my plus one. It's not as much as it used to be. And let me tell you, this is part of the dangers of leading people. When you are put in a place of leadership and influence in people's lives, it's very easy to forget why you're doing what you're doing. Ultimately, you may have the best intentions to come in and I want to serve people to help them find Jesus so they grow and they become what God wants them to be. But then when people start patting you on the back, People start giving you accolades. People start pumping you up. You're like, ooh, that feels good. The ego feels good. And then so what happens is you're like, yeah, I'm serving Jesus, but boy, I sure love when people love me. I sure like when I'm significant, my name gets dropped, and people look up to me, and then what happens, it becomes Jesus plus one equals happiness in my life. What happens is eventually significance gets above Jesus, and you'll start compromising things about who Jesus is to be significant. I don't know what your idol is, but I know that's the one I always have to guard guard against. And that's why I constantly seek to try to walk in humility before Jesus, because I know it's Him. It's His work through me that makes any difference in anybody's life. But what is it for you? What, What is that thing? What is that plus one? What is it that when you don't have that, you start to lose a sense of your significance? I remember before I even got into pastoring, I remember this was an issue in me long before I became a pastor. I remember it in high school in my junior year. So I played basketball in high school, and basketball was me. It was my identity. In fact, the school that I went to, the high school I went to, the probably the best sport in the high school, and John Denton would argue with this, was basketball because John Denton played soccer, and we were pretty good in soccer too, but was basketball. And so during basketball season, it was a huge thing. Every game day, we would wear a suit and tie, and that night, the gym would be packed, and it was, and you were something if you were on the basketball team. Everybody knew your name. You were kind of put on a pedestal, and I realized I loved that. I loved playing basketball, but I loved more the fact that people knew who I was. And so I I remember when the season would end, you know, the season really doesn't start till the fall, but you're doing summer stuff and then you're practicing in the fall and then you get to late fall into winter and then the season starts and then before spring hits, the season's over. I remember when I got to spring, every year I'd start to get depressed. Just started. In fact, what's interesting is I looked and I realized my GPA dropped when I was, was out of basketball instead of when I was playing. You'd think I was busy and when I was playing basketball, I wouldn't do well in school. I did better. But I realized when I wasn't playing basketball, I lost my significance. I wasn't wearing a suit and tie twice a week. People weren't like clamoring like, oh yeah, basketball game this, thir- this Tuesday or this Friday. And I remember for a moment, my senior year, I got so depressed, this is how depressed I got, that I needed significance, I actually contemplated for a whole day playing baseball. <laughs> now if you haven't been at the church, I've told you that, that I am a terrible baseball player. I played one season, I was knocked out cold by a ground ball to the outfield, and I had three hits total all year long. That was the only year I ever played. But my senior year, I was so depressed. I thought if I, if I could play baseball, at least be on the team, somebody would notice me again. Thank God I decided not to play baseball because it could have been even more uglier. Maybe I would have been more than knocked out by a ground ball, right? But the point was I realized I needed basketball to feel like I was somebody. And when that becomes the focus of our lives, we've got an idol on our hands. Because that idol, we're drawing significance from that idol, and we're not, we're not drawing the significance that we need, which is from Jesus himself. Then there's a third thing, verse 27. I know I have an idol if I lose myself without it. So it says in verse 27, it says, they're talking, it says, Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence into all of, of whom of all of Asia and the world worship. See, if there's something that you lose and then you no longer know who you are, you've been following an idol. And we, we do this in our culture. We create idols all over the place because when we draw from something outside of ourselves, our primary identity, we are setting ourselves up for destruction in our lives. And here's the, here's the way it works. Here's an, an example of this. It can be your job. It can be a relationship. It can be, it can be something bad like a substance. It could be whatever it is. But you look at that thing and you know you have to have that in your life for you to be primarily who you believe you are. And so let me do, I'm not trying to make a controversial political statement at all, but I want you to understand this is something really important because I think we, we get this mixed up all the time. So right now we are in the month of Pride. So gay pride is, the, across the nation, across the world, a lot of people are celebrating the diversity of, that, uh, of people who have chosen a sexual orientation based on something that's different than what they have as far as their gender. Now, the, within the church, we, we struggle with this. And, and part of what I've, I've been watching news reports, by the way, there's a part of me that understands what gay pride is all about because for so long, even the church has persecuted people living in that lifestyle, which, by the way, we are never supposed to persecute anybody. That's not our job. God is the one who judges the soul. We don't get to do that. But here's what I've also discovered, and this applies to anyone who uses any form of sexuality to identify by. This is the danger. Whether you're heterosexual or you're homosexual, here's the danger in using your sexual orientation as your primary identity. You are using somebody outside of yourself to justify your orientation or your sexuality. If I choose to love that person, then I am, therefore, this is my orientation. There's a problem with that. For you to be who you are, that person has to return love back to you. They have to, because you're drawing your sense of identity from who they are. Whether you are talking about a male-female or male-male or female-female, you have just set that person up to be the idol of your life, and it is not fair to them, because they are only human. So where do we draw our identity from? The only place you can draw your identity from is not from who you choose to love, it's from who already loves you. See, because when you choose to love, you are choosing based on conditions, and the person's reciprocal love back to you is based on conditions. The only unconditional love in the entire world is the love of God. That's the word agape in Greek, which means love without limit and out conditions. And that is the love that we live in. And if we draw our identity from that, it doesn't matter what we do on the outside, and it doesn't matter who loves us or hates us because the God of the universe has said, I love you. That's where we draw our identity from. And that's the greatest tragedy, not just of homosexuality, but of our over-sexualized culture is that we've used something that God gave as a gift as a primary identity, and it can never hold the weight. It cannot deliver on the promise. Only God can. And that's why you and I have to realize when we lose a sense of self, it's because we have an idol. But if you, Jesus is God in your life, it does not matter if you lose your job, lose your marriage, lose everything, and you still have Jesus, you don't lose who you are. Because none of those things have ever defined you because God's love is what ultimately defines you. Then there's a fourth thing, verse twenty-nine or 28 and 29. We know we're dealing with an idol if I lose my sanity without it. So what happens? They're losing ground. Artemis is being called into question. So it says in verse 28 and 29, they were enraged. It says they were confused. They all rushed together. In fact, it's funny. They get in and they're like, so like I don't even know why I'm here. There's just this frenzy. There's a riot going on. What am I supposed to do? And so there's this, this panic sets in on the city of Ephesus. And so maybe you, can ref- you and I can relate to this. Have you ever done anything in a moment of high anxiety or panic that you look back and think, what in the world was I thinking? Anybody want to admit to that? What is that? I'm not talking about mental illness. I'm talking about there's moments where you and I lose our sanity. We lose common sense. Because why? Because fear kicks into overdrive, because we're about to lose something that we think is absolutely valuable, and we don't want to lose it, so we do everything we can to hang on to it, even to our own peril. Let me show you a picture. This is an example of what happens in our country all the time. So this is Melissa Smith. She lives in Wisconsin. And one day she went to the gas station like you and I do every week. And she finished filling her tank and she put the the nozzle away and she was closing kind of the gas door and the the cap on her gas, uh, gas tank. And she looked across and saw a man jumping into the driver's seat of her car and starting up the car and trying to take off. So she actually came around the car. I'm not going to show you the video because it's ridiculous. But she comes around the car and she tries to get the guy. The guy's like six foot three, probably 250 pounds. She's trying to pull him out of the car. She's not going to win that battle. So she, in her common sense, thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll jump on the windshield, and that will solve all of our problems. Now, if you were to see the video, this guy drives around the gas station a little bit, and he's starting and stopping and trying to throw her off. And eventually, he just jumps out of the car and runs because he realizes she's hanging on. And you think, wow, she won. But then the car starts rolling out of the street, and she has to chase a driving car and get into it and try to almost gets hit in the street. This happens every year, and I don't know what the count is, but I think there's estimates. There's like, like four or five people a year die from this. And I've seen video of it. Somebody's stealing my car. Someone's stealing my car. So you go out and you jump on the hood because that's what a smart person would do. (laughs) Let go of the flipping car. You're like, Pastor John almost cussed. Yeah, that's as close as as you're going to get. But seriously, think about that. Most likely her car's insured, right? So she may have to pay a deductible. Big deal. It's a car. But for her, it's more than a car. Maybe it's something that she's saved for. Maybe it's an identity. I don't know why the lights keep flickering. I don't know, but just keep focusing. But think about that. Have you ever done something that ridiculous? Yeah, all of us probably can think about Why in the world did I do that? Why did I I give myself away or lose a part of myself for that relationship? Because I thought if I didn't have that person, I couldn't live without him. How many times do we lose that? We lose our common sense and our sanity. And if that becomes a part of our life, then we know what are we dealing with? We're dealing with an idol in our life. So there's three more things I want to highlight from the passage that have more to do with how we respond when our idols are threatened. When when the gospel presses in, when Jesus shows up and he says, oh, by the way, this is an idol, the first two things we're going to look at are the ways in which you and I normally respond but shouldn't. And the third one is the way that we should respond, which actually leads to freedom in our lives from the substitutes that we buy into. So the first thing is this I res- many times we respond when idols are threatened by denial. 36 and 30, 35 and 36, the town clerk says, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So he's saying, Listen, this is not a big deal. Don't you know that Artemis is, this is the city that, that says it's Artemis. And we know that Artemis obviously comes from some background, that something fell from the sky, that somehow they blamed on divinity. So don't you know, this is no big deal. Who could possibly threaten Artemis? Which is easy for the town clerk to say to a bunch of people who are about to lose everything. But what is he doing? He's saying, this is no big deal. You don't need to worry. You don't need to write. You don't need to get all excited about this. Just pipe down. You don't need to, to get all upset about this. How many times do you and I downplay the very things that God's trying to press in in our lives? Uh, all the time, <laughs> right? Anybody ever dismiss something that you thought, oh, that could be God, and in your mind you really think it might be, but you're like, ah, nah, it's not. It's the pizza I had last night. It's just the guilt I don't want to feel. And then you just get busy doing something else, trying to ignore the voice of the Lord in your life. Because the enemy's primary way to keep us stuck in idolatry is to make us live in denial that we have any. I don't have any idols. I don't have any issues in my life. I'm okay. I'm fine. It's exactly where the enemy wants us to live. We have a problem with that. Because idols cause us to not see clearly. So I know, I think one of the primary idols in our lives, in our country, and even in the church today, is the idol of comfort. If you think about how much of our life is spent, how, how we can avoid uncomfortable, being discomforted in our lives, it's huge. It dominates our life. We don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to be inconvenienced. And that's why the gospel comes as a threat to many of us, because it turns our lives upside down. Jesus will turn your world upside down. And many of us, we don't want our world turned, up, turned upside down. So we fight against it. We battle against it. And one of those things is comfort. We are the most comfortable nation on the face of the earth. We have a certain lifestyle that we've, we've fallen into that is based on comfort. And I've, I've noticed in my life, the more technology comes to the surface and the more we're dependent on technology, the more irritated we get when it doesn't work. Anybody? You know, when your phone doesn't work? You know, when your wireless thermostat doesn't work? Yeah, I'm just confessing, okay? You know how frustrating it is? You know, when your app on your phone to open your garage door doesn't work? Yeah, I'm confessing another one, right? Yeah, I like technology, but what, it's all based on convenience. Convenience actually is an enemy of the gospel. Because when you read through the book of Acts, everybody who encountered Jesus was absolutely inconvenienced. And comfort no longer was an idol to them. They embraced... Being uncomfortable all the time. Paul took a life of prestige and prominence as a Jewish leader and he threw it all away to be put in prison and eventually give his life for Jesus. He denied comfort so he could be uncomfortable for Jesus. So man, I got the Holy Spirit just slapped me upside the head this week and realizing this was still an issue in my life. So... I'm out of school for four weeks right now, which is a chance to catch up for a lot of things I haven't been able to do while I'm in school. And so I had a lot of meetings this week, a lot of things that, are, that I had to get to. Um, and then part of that was I've been asked, this really cool opportunity, I've been asked to be a coach for our Chinese pastors in Southern California. And so it was a great privilege because I've been to China a couple of times and I thought this is going to be a great thing. And so I budgeted a certain amount of time on Tuesday to go have lunch with these leaders. And so, of course, when you're traveling into LA, everything takes a lot longer always does, so it took longer for us to get there, and then we were supposed to be there at 11.30. We actually got there on time, and so this is one of the things I love and then struggle with sometimes living in in working with Chinese culture. They don't, they have a different time schedule than we do. They're more relaxed than we are, which by the way, most of the world is. We're so uptight, and so we got there, and 11.30, everyone's supposed to be there, and it took till 12.30 for everybody to show up, and then it took till like 12.45, 1 o'clock for us to order food. And if you've ever eaten at actually a real Chinese restaurant, they don't bring all the food out at once. It comes out actually usually one dish at a time. And we ordered like 10 dishes. So we finally didn't finish the meeting until like 2.30 or 3. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, I have so much to do. And then as we started eating, we, we went around the table and just to kind of get to know all the leaders. Tell us a little bit about your background and your story and so I'm hearing amazing stories from people, and then there's a couple sitting right next to me, and they start sharing their story. And this is, this, I was really gracious, because I was the foreigner at the table. They all spoke Mandarin, and thank God they all spoke English, because I don't speak Mandarin. And so they, they all were speaking English, and so they started to share their story. And this is what they told me. They said, yeah, we're, we're in the United States, and we've been here not by choice. And I'm like, didn't you immigrate here? Why aren't you here by choice? They had been missionaries in their own country. Country is a big country with a lot of diversity in it. so they actually were missionaries from one part of China to another part of China trying to reach people for Jesus. And they were persistent in telling people about Jesus, so much so that they got on the radar of the government. And the government kept punishing them and kept limiting them and kept trying to stop them to the point where the wife actually was thrown into jail. But it didn't stop them. They kept telling people about Jesus. And finally, the Chinese government got so tired of them, they expelled them from China and said, yeah, we know that you have Chinese passports, but you can't come back here. We want you out. So they banned them. They exiled them to the United States. And so now what are they doing here? They're starting a church for Chinese people who've migrated from China that don't know Jesus yet, and they're doing it here in the United States. When they started, yeah, you can applaud. That's pretty incredible. So I'm sitting there thinking, I don't have time for this. I was so convicted because this wasn't fitting in my convenient schedule. It didn't work in my calendar. And God said, yeah, that's the way I work normally. You still have an idol of convenience and comfort that needs to die in your life. How many times do we not want to be interrupted we, want, we don't want God to come and invade our space. Why? Because we have everything that we want to do, and we don't want God to get in the way of that. even though we wouldn't say that. So we react by living in denial. Second thing, verse 40, tells us that not only is denial an issue when our idols are threatened, but complacency, which is a little bit different than denial. Denial says, I don't want to do that. Complacency says, I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to change. In verse 40, it says... The clerk says, For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this motion." What is the city clerk saying? Don't do anything. There's no cause for this. This is a non-issue. Just remain the same. Who wants you to remain the same? The enemy does. Because the enemy knows if the world remains the same, their destiny is separation from God forever. But there's somebody who doesn't want us to remain the same. It's Jesus. That's why he came into the world. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose from the dead. Why? Because he conquered sin and death. The biggest things, the two biggest issues that will keep us away from him for eternity. He's dealt with those things. Why? Because he loves people. But you and I have a tendency to want to stay the same. We're okay with that. And Jesus is not okay with that. Not to the point where he's trying to change you because you have to earn your your way into his love and affection. No, he's changing you because he already loves you. And he doesn't want you to be complacent. But I want you to think about the idols in your life. Here's how you know if you have an idol. Do something different that you wouldn't normally do and go without something that you normally have to see whether or not it's an idol. The Bible calls this thing fasting. We usually apply it to food. You give up food as a way to give up time so that you can spend time with God and you can really be focused in on what he's saying to you. There's a lot of reasons that we fast. But what if you had maybe an inkling that, man, you know what, this might be an idol, but I don't know if it really is. What if you just went without it? What if you said, for this week, I choose not to participate in this or to have this. I'm going to eliminate it from my life and just see how I react. Just think about what would that look like? What if, what if food is an issue? Like, you know what? I'm going to fast this week. Some of you are like, oh, don't go there. I think I'm going to fast at least a meal a day or maybe two meals a day for this whole week. Or maybe I'm going to fast the whole week. And then the first day you do it, you're like, I'm going to die, right? Because i got to have food. I can't survive. By the way, Jesus did it for 40 days and survived. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's TV. Maybe you just, I mean, you... You're, most of us don't admit we're addicted to TV, but every night most of us have a TV on sometime during the night, and we can't function without it. That's why I'll admit this. How many of you end up eating dinner in front of a TV? I know a lot of us end up doing that. Why? Because we just gravitate towards the glow of a high-definition TV, right? What if you said, I'm not going to watch TV for a week? So you're like, I could do that. Okay, try it. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's not a TV. Maybe it's video games. Uh, No one's addicted to video games. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's actually been classified as a a real addiction now. Video games are an addiction. Just say, what would it be like if you didn't touch your Xbox for a week or the app on your phone or the game on your computer that nobody knows is there? What if you just didn't touch it? How could you survive? Well, maybe this one will hit a little bit more to home. Coffee. Because we know what coffee is. Coffee's Christianized alcohol. That's what it is. Because it's acceptable in the church. It is. I'm telling you, coffee is ingrained in church culture. That's why a few years ago when we chose not to serve coffee here as a means to save money to give more away, you would not believe the pushback we got. You've got to have coffee at church. Jesus didn't have coffee at church. Maybe he had wine at a wedding, but he didn't have coffee at church. But think about it. Could you give up coffee? I I know coffee's a strong drive. I know. Some of you are so addicted to coffee, you walk into Starbucks, you don't even have to use the app and your drink is waiting on the counter because they know you're coming, right? Because you have a standing order at 7.30 every morning on your way to work or 8 o'clock or whatever it is. We're addicted to that. How do you know you're dealing with an idol? Be willing to give it up for a week and see what happens. If you can't live without it, you've got an idol on your hands. Why? Because that idol wants you to remain the same. And God says, yeah, if that idol stays in your life, you will stay the same, but you think you'll stay the same, but you're actually going to deteriorate because the Christian life is is like walking on a treadmill. If you stop walking, you go backwards. And that's what happens. We start losing ground. We think we're not, we're fine, I'm just gonna stay. No, no, you keep losing ground because you're not pursuing Jesus, you're not following Jesus. That's why Jesus didn't say, come and stand by me. Jesus said, come and follow me which means we're active participants. We step into things in our life, which leads to the final thing, and that is this is how we should respond when our idols are threatened, when Jesus really does reveal these things to us, and that is we should sacrifice them. So I'm going to just jump back to two verses we talked about last week in the earlier part of, of chapter 19. So you remember last week we talked about God's power, and we talked about when God's power shows up, what happens, And the the crazy things that happened when some guys tried to cast out demons and they tried to throw Paul's name out there and Jesus' name out there and it doesn't work for them because they don't understand the authority behind the power. But the response out of that was the fear of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that came on a whole city, especially people who were followers of Jesus. And it actually says, what happened in this city? What happened in Ephesus? In verse 19, it says this, A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we talked about this last week. A, a, a one piece of silver was the equivalent of one day's wages. So that's 50,000 days of wages was sacrificed in a moment because that was idolatry that they were giving up to follow Jesus. And that means that if you and I are ultimately going to be free, we're going to be who God's called us to be, That means it's going to require us to sacrifice the idols in our life, to give them up. I know it's difficult because some of us really, we're thinking about something specific right now, and we can't imagine what our lives would look like without that. And if that's the case, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, we have a plus one. We have Jesus plus this equals happiness. But it doesn't. Because that plus one will always become more significant in your life than Jesus will. That idol will take over your life. That's the way, that's the way idols work. They're substitutes that over-promise and under-deliver all the time. So we have to come to grips with that. So I want to I close this because this is significant and this is important. In fact, just in a moment, when I pray, the worship team is going to come and they're going to join us for one last song and that is that part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we don't get to add Jesus onto our hopes and dreams. Because so many times what, what we sell Christianity as is this. If you say yes to Jesus, he will make your life better. He'll make all of your wildest dreams come true. That's vote for Pedro. That's not vote for Jesus. And we make that the form of Christianity that we have. And it leads to terrible disappointment in the lives of people. I can't tell you how many times I've come in and I've counseled with people who are so disillusioned with God. Because they thought that coming to Jesus meant that Jesus would just wipe out all of their problems. And they would finally get to do what they wanted to do in their life. Why? Because Jesus had just been an addition to their life. He was no longer the foundation. He was just added on top to what they, they wanted to do in their lives. But see, there's something at the core of all of us that we have to be willing to surrender. You know what it is? It's our will for our lives. It's mourning the loss of our preferred future. What we think our life is supposed to be about has to die. And if what you think your life is supposed to be about is what Jesus has created your life to be about, guess what he'll do? He will resurrect it. So don't worry about it. But if you never let it die, you won't know if that's what God's called you to do or called you to be. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, if you sacrifice what you think you're supposed to be about to follow Jesus, he may actually emerge with something better than you could have ever thought of on your own. He could give you hopes and dreams that exceed anything you could have accomplished of your own creation, but you're too busy trying to make your thing work and have Jesus as an additive that you've never seen what God has for you yet. Because your own idol in your life is your will for your life. It's your, it's your script. It's your agenda. It's what you think you're supposed to do, but you haven't bothered to sacrifice that to see what Jesus wants for your life. As we've read through the book of Acts, that, that's one of the common honors to see for every person who comes in encounter encounter with Jesus. Remember Peter? Peter left the biggest catch of fish in his entire career as a fisherman to follow Jesus. Paul walked away from being an elite in the Jewish culture and religion To follow Jesus. Zacchaeus walked away from his wealth as one of the wealthiest people in his culture and actually committed to pay back four times what he stole from people, which was twice what the law required. Who does that? Somebody who sees a God who's more valuable than anything they've ever seen in their life. And that's why even Jesus tells parables about the kingdom of God where a guy digs up a treasure in a field and when he finds it, he buries it again and he goes off and he sells everything he owns to get money to buy that field. Why? Because he's found the treasure of his lifetime. That's the kingdom of God. Why do I know this is an issue for us? Because it's been an issue for humanity throughout human history. Let me go back just for a moment and the worship team will join us. Back at the beginning of Acts, when we started this journey back in September, we were in Acts chapter 1, the first few verses. And there's a theme that jumped right into the first part part of Acts that was laced throughout all four Gospels that Jesus kept running into with his followers. And that was this. When Jesus came into the world as the Messiah, the Jews were waiting for him. Now, some of them obviously missed him, but their version of what they saw in the Messiah was different than who Jesus turned out to be. And the reason we know this is because when Jesus shows up, this is what his early followers believed. Jesus is the Messiah who's come to save Israel. He has come to reestablish Israel's kingdom on the earth. That's what they all believed. So that's why the crowds on what we call Palm Sunday all gathered in Jerusalem and they laid down palm branches and they worshiped Jesus. Why? Because they were convinced He's going to save Israel. And then if you follow the week, what happens when he gets to Friday, everybody leaves him. Why? Because he's not here to save Israel. He's here to save the world. And then you get to the first chapter of part of Acts and Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go back to be the father. And he says, I'm going to send my spirit. And then their first question is what? Hey, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I can just imagine Jesus. Are you serious? You are witnesses to my death and my resurrection. And you're still asking if I'm here to fulfill your agenda for your life. See, it was there 2,000 years ago, and it still creeps in today. And Jesus is saying, Are you willing to sacrifice your preferred future for your life for something that's real and better? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask the worship team to come join us. I'm going to ask that we focus our attention on what Jesus may be saying to us today. I just, before I pray, I want to mention, if you're here today and maybe you're visiting or maybe you've been coming to church for a little while, but you know that there's never been that place in your life where you know that you have literally laid everything out before Jesus, and that means that, that all the failed attempts at being who you think you're supposed to be, all the failures in your life, which the Bible calls sin, all of your successes, all of your failures, victories and defeats, Everything of what you think your life's supposed to be, you've never come to a place where you've just say, I'm, I'm all, I'm going to just lay it all down to follow Jesus. Today you can do that, because maybe you've been following after an idol that's been pulling you away from Jesus, and today's the day that you finally sacrifice that thing and give it up. And the result would be that Jesus would come, not an idol in your life, but he would become the Lord and God of your life. If that's you, then in a moment when I pray, you just simply tell God, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm giving my life to you. I'm laying down my idols. Even the good things that become ultimate things, I want to give those up to you. And then those of you, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a number of years, I want us to to honestly reflect, and maybe for most of you, you don't even have to really reflect. You already know that as we've been talking this morning, there's things that the Lord's been pressing in on you. Yeah, this, this looks like an idol in your life. Remember it could be something that's been a good thing in your life, but now it's become something that no longer serves you. You serve it. It's you become a slave to it. Maybe it's significance, Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a person or relationship. Maybe it's even your own family has become an idol to you that you, that you put as a pedestal and you use as a reason why you won't do things that Jesus calls you to whatever it might be, but you know what it is because the Holy Spirit's faithful to reveal those things. And I'm going to ask you in a moment as I pray that you would be willing to simply hand that over to Jesus. Trust Him. Trust Him that He knows better than the substitute that you've been following. And then let Him bring to life the very things that He wants for you. As the idols fall, then true life happens and true freedom comes to each one of us. So Jesus... We thank you that you are a God that is worthy of our lives, worthy of our praise, worthy of our sacrifice. Lord, we know we don't have to sacrifice in order for you to love us, but Lord, in order to follow you, we have to let go of the things that we think would bring joy, happiness, flourishing, contentment to our lives and let you prove yourself as the one, the only one who can do that. So Lord, I ask right now, give us the courage to lay these things down. Even this week, give us the courage to, to let go of things that are gonna keep coming back at us and trying to vie for our affection, our attention, life. that we would lay those things down today so that you might reveal yourself fully to us. And then Lord, from here forward, we would choose to no longer build our hopes and our dreams on some idol or substitute, but, Lord Jesus, to build our lives upon your love for us that is unconditional. And therefore, there won't be a competition. There won't be a plus one. There will only be Jesus. There will be only you, the one and only that we serve, the one and only that we worship. Jesus, give us the courage to walk that out in our lives this week.